Hi, and welcome to the Podcast Brunch Club podcast. My name is Adela, and I'm the founder of PBC. As you probably know by now, PBC is like book club, but for podcasts. Every month, we curate a thematic podcast playlist, and groups worldwide gather to discuss them. The theme for our December playlist was talking about my generation and featured four episodes. You can find the full playlist at podcastbrunchclub.com generations. One of the episodes we featured was from How to Talk to Mommy and Poppy About Anything, and I'm really excited to have Juleka Lantigua-Williams, the host of the show and all-around podcast powerhouse, as you will soon hear, as our guest today. Juleka is the founder of Lantigua Williams & Co., a digital media studio that has a long and impressive roster of podcasts, including Latina to Latina, 70 Million, Feeling My Flow, and more, which you'll hear about in our conversation. But I do want to shout out a few really amazing recent honors. 70 Million was nominated for a Peabody and won the Director's Prize at Third Coast. And How to Talk to Mommy and Poppy About Anything was named one of Spotify's best new shows of 2020. So with that, let me welcome Juleka to the show. Hi, Juleka. Welcome to the Podcast Brunch Club podcast. Hi, Adela. I'm so happy to be here. It's always good to see you. I'm, I'm lucky enough to know you personally, but for those of our audience who aren't as lucky, why don't you tell us about yourself and tell us about the show, and we'll go from there. Sure. So, hi, everybody. I'm Juleka. I am the founding member of Adela's podcast brunch club fan club. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a I fan. Can vouch. I'm yeah. just a fan. Um, no, I, she's one of my favorite people in podcasting because um, she's all about community and bringing more people in. And I share that uh, with her. So I am the founder and CEO of Lantigua Williams & Co. We are an independent podcast production studio. And we also do films, uh, short films for now. And we have been around for three and a half years. And we do shows like 70 Million, Latina to Latina, Birthful, Feeling My Flow. Those are our original shows, including How to Talk to Mommy and Papi About Anything. And then we've been really lucky. We have amazing clients. Uh, we are currently producing two shows for Marvel. One is called... Um, Marvel Method and is hosted by Method Man and he interviews all kinds of luminaries and celebrities about their love of comics and that's a really fun show to work on. And then we also just did a really beautiful 10-part documentary for Macmillan Podcasts called Driving the Green Book and um, that was definitely a passion project for me because I got to do something that I haven't been able to do in a while which is write uh, mm. on a series and edit it. And so I hope you, in addition to listening to How to Talk to Mommy and Poppy, uh, check out those shows. Yes, definitely. I will put links to all of those in the show notes. I did not realize that you were behind Driving the Green Book. Yeah, I um, co-wrote it. <laughs> Congrats. <laughs> amazing. And edited it. And Cedric Wilson, our amazing, amazing sound designer and composer, he did the score. Wow. And he and he beats it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, between the two of us and Alvin and so, and a couple of producers at Macmillan, that, that was our baby for over a year. Amazing. So that actually brings up I want I want people to know a little bit about your background. Tell us about your background. Like how did you get to this place? Sure. So 
in my previous lifetime, in my previous life, I was a journalist. And my last two gigs were respectively as the head of Code Switch at NPR and prior to that as a staff uh, writer at The Atlantic. And prior to that, I spent 18 years in media. So I've had almost every job. <laughs> I've worked in books, in newspapers, on digital, in magazines. Um, and then I just fell in love with audio when I worked at NPR and really learned a whole new language as a storyteller and essentially eloped <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with podcasting. And we've been happy ever since. Yeah. Didn't, do I remember correctly? Didn't you get a Fulbright? I did. Uh, that was a long, long time ago, right after college. Um, I applied to a Fulbright having no idea what it was. Um, I had come back from study abroad and had just experienced so many incredible things as a young woman. I went to my advisor and in a very sort of like telenovela style was like, I can't. I just can't. I must go back. I must go back. And so... <laughs> And if you thought you wake up, I was up. nineteen. I was nineteen at the time. Okay, and so it, it was very par for the course at nineteen. And so she says to me, "You know, there's a travel grant. It's called the Fulbright. And why don't you go see Professor Fox in the sociology department? He's the advisor for that." So I was like, "Okay, see you later." So I went over. There was I didn't Google anything because. I don't think even Google existed. This was 1995. So I go to Professor Fox's office. I've never met him, never taken a class with him. Lovely person. And I said, hi, Professor Fox. Professor Rubio sent me over. She said that you're the advisor for this travel grant, Fulbright, Bright White, something, something, something. Can I have an, can I have an application? Literally, that's exactly. Oh and he looks at me, he looks at me rightfully like I am growing tentacles out of my head <laughs> because <laughs> uh, I can't like he's looking at me like probably thinking you don't know the name, but you want to apply for this thing. And so he's so he sort of like says to me, OK, well, you know, there are some prerequisites for this. And I said, OK, sure. What are they? So he's like, oh, you have to have X, X, Y you know, um, 3.0. And I was like, I have that. You have to speak a foreign language. I have that. And you do it. And I was like, great. Okay. So where's the application? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so the lesson in that is, um, just do it. Some, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to do it and you have to do it with good reason. Right. Like had I Googled it, if it existed, had I talked to anyone about it, I probably would not have applied because I would have been so intimidated. Yeah. Um, and then um, it was just it was just an insane process. I mean, it took three months mm -hmm. to do the application because it was it probably is still pretty intense. But then uh, this biology major and I made history as the first time our college had received two Fulbright scholars. And where'd you go? In the same year. So I went to Skidmore in Saratoga Springs, New York. OK. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so... I think everybody can get right now just from those couple of stories and like some of the names you just dropped, like Joyka is a serious powerhouse. Like this woman is like no nonsense. <laughs> she is like one tough mama. And like, it's really very exciting to have her on the show. So, but I want to, I want to loop back around to the show, right? The podcast that we're featuring yes. this month, how to talk to mommy and Poppy about anything. It's fairly new. 
So tell us. Very new. Yeah, very new. Probably one of your most recent. It's it's the most recent original. So we've since since we launched How to Talk to Mommy and Papi about anything, we did bring on an already existing show called Birthful. Right. So technically in the roster, Birthful is the newest one, but Birthful has been around for five years. Got it. Um, so in terms of chronology, this is our newest show. And it started similarly. So <laughs> Somebody, <laughs> oh, I'm starting to see a pattern. Is this going to turn into therapy? <laughs> um, so my very dear friend emailed me and said, hey, I, this was in March um, at the beginning of the year. And she said, hey, I want to organize something called Potapalooza to benefit families impacted by COVID. And I want to feature both existing shows and maybe new shows. This was three weeks before the start of the online festival. And I said, I'm in. What do you need? Like, what can, how can we support? What can we offer? We'll sponsor. Like, that sounds exactly like you, right? You're just like, I'm in. (laughs) Yes to everything. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Like, I'm in. Let's figure it out. And then I say to her, no, I didn't say to her then. Then, like, an idea came to me after I had a, a really incredible conversation with a friend of mine. And so, in within, I think 72 hours of me just saying, yes, we're in, we'll sponsor, we'll support. What do you need help with? I emailed her back and said, P.S., I'm launching a completely new show at the festival. <laughs> and it just and came we to made you then? The show, wow. And we made the show in two and a half weeks Jeez. to launch at Potapalooza. That's incredible. But like, <laughs> what was the impetus like for the show? What was the idea? Why, why did you want to sh- start something about this topic? And maybe before you even answer that question, you can explain to those who may not have listened yet what the show is about. Absolutely. So it's a to me, it's a really simple premise, right? So there are a lot of us who are in multi-generational families. And there are also a lot of us who are in multi-generational families where the parents are immigrants and we are the firstborn uh, American child. And that creates all kinds of communication challenges and also of cultural challenges, honestly. And so... In the show, we have three parts. It's 20 minutes. I made them very compact um, because I know that this is supposed to be a tool. You know, this is this is not where you come for answers. This is where you come for tools for then you go and figure out what, what the dynamics are in your own life. And so the first part is what we call the testimonial. And it's about five to seven minutes of a person sharing their story. And just saying, you know, here's what's going on between me and my dad. Here's what's going on between me and my mom. Or here's what's going on between my siblings and my parents. And so they just give us that story. And then I spend about 10 to 12 minutes talking to an expert. So it could be someone who is a family therapist or someone who's a lawyer or someone who is a psychologist or someone who works in estate planning. It really depends on what the topic is. And then that person, before we they come to talk to me, they listen to the testimonial. So obviously they have the context. And then what I try to get from the person is actionable suggestions. What are the concrete things that we can do as, you know, multi-generational families to really address or at least name. I mean, there are some times where people don't have the words to actually name what the dynamic is that's happening between them and their families. And so then the last three minutes, I basically spent summarizing, you know, so I just give like a crib notes um, of, okay, so here are the top three things that the expert has suggested you do. Mm-hmm. And that's it. 
Yeah. You know, and so it, the, the, the premise of the show is really simple because so I'm a I should just also confess I'm really a social scientist by training I was a political science major in college and you know I have a master's in journalism I have a master's in um, nonfiction writing so my subject has always been people my subject has always been relationships at the macro level and at the micro level and so I was talking to uh, my friend Sandra, that's not her real name. That's the name that we're using in the show. She's the, the very first episode. And I've been friends with her for 25 years. She's the godmother to my children, an amazing, gifted playwright. I'm talking to her, and this is early March, right when you, you actually lives in New York, where I used to live, where I'm from. This is in March at the beginning of the pandemic. And we're just talking, catching up, how are the kids, how's work, etc. And she tells me that her 70-something-year-old mom, who is married to her retired 70-something-year-old stepdad, who usually spends winters in Florida, has just called to inform her that because the governor is about to shut New York down, she's going to get in a car and drive to New York. Okay. And <laughs> she's like, uh, no. Right. Yeah. But she's like, no, in every possible way that you can say no, yeah. <laughs> right? And she calls her brother to try and intervene. Yeah. She calls cousins. She calls everyone in the family to try and intervene and say, this is a horrible idea. So it appears that they're not going to do it. They're going to stay put. Then within 24 hours, she gets a call that they're in Georgia, hey. that they've already started driving. And so as her friend, I immediately go into overprotective mode, right? And so whereas in the first conversation, my response was, well, if she wants to accelerate her own death, so be it. Yeah. Honestly, I'm, I'm a tough love kind of person. I love hard, but I also don't have any room for BS, especially when it puts your family in physical danger. Mm -hmm. So then the second conversation was more like, okay, well, you know what? She has a right to make bad decisions. She's a very competent woman. She's gone her whole life making decisions for herself. And the fact that her husband is going along with this tells you everything you need to know. So here's what you do. You don't let her into your mm -hmm. house. <laughs> you tell her you can be wherever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do, but you don't come this side of my door because I have two teenage, two teenage children in my house and I also have to protect myself. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And of course she was like, I can't do that. Right. Are you crazy? Right. How, how am I, this is my mother that we're talking about. How am I ever going to do that? Right. And so having the conversation with her made me realize that even in the face of actual mortal danger, there are these cultural norms that we cannot get past, right? And then using that framework, I started thinking about all of the other times that I myself have faced those situations, that other friends have faced that situation. And then it just became so clear to me, we need to talk about yeah. this. <laughs> and we need professional help, right? Like that's yes, part exactly, of what... Yes, yeah. exactly. Because we clearly have not figured it out. <laughs> we continue to have the same problems and have the same conversations with our parents over yes. and over again. Yes, for sure. 
Yeah, and we should say that Adela was on the show. She was one of my first friends who I cajoled mm. into coming on because I wasn't sure if this was going <laughs> to Yeah, you put out a call well. and I, res- I responded. You know, I am also a first-generation American. And, you know, there are some, some it's just, it's, it was a really good idea. It is a really good idea. And it was really interesting to just like hear the expert's perspective on sort of my relationship with my father. So yeah, your episode did really well, too, because it came it came early on at a time where those kind of political intergenerational dynamics were really coming to the fore. I mean, it exploded. I mean, and we saw mm-hmm. the election that it, that whole thread really exploded. But I thought your episode was fantastic because it, politics is one of those taboo subjects. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So um, in terms of the testimonial part. Was there sort of a conscious decision that you made? Because I know because I was on the on the podcast that you intentionally cut out your question, like cut out your voice from that sort of, you know, now it's very clear that you're calling it a testimonial. Was there a reason that you wanted to do it that way? rather than just have it more be like an interview? Oh, yeah, it was very intentional. um, Because I felt that a person is the best qualified person to tell their story, right? And so my job when I am talking to interviewees who are who are going to be featured as testimonials, my job is just to give them sort of like a guide, mm-hmm. you know, like because everyone doesn't think in story form. Everyone doesn't naturally narrate things in the order in which they should be narrated. Mm-hmm. And so when Virginia, our producer on the show, when she does the prep, we follow a certain chronology based on what they say they want to talk about. And then, of course, we edit that because, you know, I talk to them for 20 minutes and we get five to seven minutes out of it. But I was very intentional in one, letting the person just tell their story. But then two, I really wanted listeners to hear that person and go, oh, my God, that's me. Mm -hmm. I've, I've, or, or that's my sister, or that's my friend, or that's my husband, right? And so also I wanted to take myself out of that so that the listener could have that one-on-one experience with the person who's telling a real-life story. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, so you've spoken to quite a few people who are struggling with talking to their parents about some issue, right? Like at this point, how many episodes do you guys have? I think we're at 35. <laughs> that's, that's a yeah. lot for not that <laughs> yeah. long of a time. So yeah. I guess my question is, why do you think it's so difficult to talk to your parents? And and um, one of the things that your guest on the episode that we listened to said is that her parents are projecting their fears onto her and that she was having a hard time kind of squaring that circle. So is that is that a theme that you see kind of throughout the the discussions you've had with other people is that it's mostly about projecting fear. Yes. And of course I didn't see it, but multiple counselors and therapists and people who work with families that, that have inter intergenerational conflict continue to say that. And now I'm able to take that and frame it in questions to people so that we can get them thinking about it. And so um, one of our favorite, uh, I shouldn't say our, I should say one of my favorite guests to have is this family therapist. Uh, her name is uh, Claudia. And she's just like, no holds barred. She tells it like, the, like it is. She's super brilliant. She knows her stuff inside and out. And one of the things she said, I think on the very first episode that she came on is that the children of immigrants forget that 
coming to the country for our parents was an existential choice. Like many mm-hmm. of them really felt like they themselves didn't have a future their future children or their already born children wouldn't have a future, that where they were was a complete dead end. And that really hit hard the first time I heard it. Because then as an adult and as a mom now, I think about what wouldn't I do to ensure that my children were safe? What what sacrifices wouldn't I, I make? There really isn't one. There really isn't a sacrifice that I wouldn't make for my children, right? right? Especially on an existential level. And so I think what happens a lot is that as first gens, we are so preoccupied with the now, with what's happening in the household, with what's happening between us, with where the conflict is between what you expect of me versus what I'm able to give, that we completely forget about the context. And this happened really concretely in another episode, in a recent episode uh, with a Salvadoran, uh, first Salvadoran-American, first gen, whose parents had actually fled the Civil War. And I asked him, I said, have you ever thought about the fact that your parents were in their 20s when they fled a civil war to come to the U.S. It stopped him dead yeah. in his tracks. Yeah, yeah. there's something about um, when I was doing some research as we were building this pl- this playlist, I came across a lot of, um, and I didn't really include too much of it, but I think there's still a thread throughout the playlist about it. Um, generational trauma and how it's mm-hmm. hereditary. Yep. And so, I mean, they speak a lot about it through um, violence, right? Dov- domestic yep. violence, but also, you know, like Holocaust survivors and how yes. children of Holocaust survivors um, sort of inherit the trauma that their parents underwent. And so there's there's also that. And the other thing that you made me think about is, so in my case, for example, I don't, my dad, my parents didn't leave their home countries. My, my father is Israeli, my mother's British, but they didn't leave their home countries um, for existential reasons. But I think a lot of people are in this boat in that they left their countries for, to pursue other opportunities with the intention of going back at some mm-hmm. point, and yep. they didn't. And yep. that in and of itself is a little bit traumatic for my parents, mm-hmm. or at least for my father. Mm-hmm. And that sort of then I, I inherit it. And so there's like, um, and I just see it in him right now, you know, he's 80. And I see sort of this, like, oddness, not odd, I mean, it makes 100% sense. But there's this real nostalgia for where he came from, without qu- kind of like, realizing that the country that he loves and remembers is not the same country now, yep. he just sort of like, yep. throws it in time. And yeah, I can imagine a lot of, of a lot of, um, you know, children of immigrants also experiencing that where it's not necessarily you're fleeing a civil war, but you're intending to go get some sort of opportunity with the intention of coming back. And then there's that you, you didn't go back because life just carried on. And so, no, there's a sense that you didn't complete the mission. Yes. Right. Like you set out with this grand mission, willing to put in the work, willing to make the sacrifices. But then the third and final arc of the mission, you're never going to get to do it because the story changed so much and because of your life choices that you're happy with, but you still feel that sense of incompleteness. Yeah. 
right? And so I understand that fully because my mom was actually able to go back to the Dominican Republic and retire there. Mm. But she spent 30 years brick by brick building a little house, you know, making sure that she she would have a little garden to tend, Mm -hmm. right? And so the way that she delayed that sort of third arc but was able to eventually accomplish was that every year she was making a little bit of progress toward toward that goal and she is i mean she misses us terribly but she is safer there she is happier there the cost of living is such that we can support her right because my mom she was raising four kids so she was never really able to be fully in in the work economy so she doesn't get a social security check yeah you know and so For her, the journey that she started, you know, in 1986, when she married my stepdad, my dad passed when I was seven, when I was 10, no, when I was seven, when when I was 10, we moved to the U.S., my sister was seven. I know, I'm old. (laughs) Hashtag, I'm old. So she was able to complete it. Yeah. Right. right. And she takes great satisfaction in saying, you know, my children, they all have families. They all have college degrees. They're all middle class. They're all happy with the work that that they do. Mm -hmm. You know, this this is the product. This is my success Mm -hmm. is basically how she says my success is having these four children who are. You know, they're good people, they're decent people, they're loving people, you know, and it's very satisfying for her. Yeah. So as you've talked to so many sort of children, right, for the most part, you're talking to about to the children about their parents and and that. How are you like you have children of your own, right? You're a mom to how many? To two, two, about to be 11 and just turned nine, two boys. Yeah. So are you... Is this reframing the way that you think about how you raise your children or? Constantly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, it really, it really is. Um, And what I have to do, because they're so young, I have to figure out, okay, so how do I make a behavior that reflects this new understanding, but that is age appropriate. So that's like the challenge for me that I have to be translating what my intent is, but in a way that that comes across to them. So for example, one of the things that we never talked about in my house was making mistakes and failing, right? Because totally. you, yeah. you just succeed. Like, what is this failure business? Yeah. <laughs> like, why didn't you get an A? What's this B plus, mm-hmm. right? You know that. Mm-hmm. And so my parents, my mom and my stepdad, who are salt of the earth people, never modeled for me or for my siblings what it's like to fail at something, right? And then go through the process of experiencing that and then moving on and doing something else, Yeah. right? Yeah. And so one of the takeaways that I have with my kids is that I am constantly in age appropriate ways modeling not just failure but tripping over falling down getting up and going again so concrete example I just finished this um this is going to be really funny because it just makes me laugh every time I I see the scene in my head but I just finished this really intensive ten uh eight week program at Stanford which is like a Latino business incubator and I mean, it was, so, I had, I had work like graduate level work every single week. And, um, at the same time, my kids are doing distance learning. And what happens is if they miss an assignment, I get an email. So when I get that email, I go up to them and I go, hi, see this email? 
go finish this assignment, right? And so that's just like part of how I'm keeping them focused. I got an email from my professor that I missed an assignment. (laughs) (laughs) So you know what I did? I marched right over to them and I said, look, I got an email from my professor that I missed an assignment. And they laughed so much. Yeah. Right? Like mom's not perfect and it's still okay. Yeah. And then I said, so I need support today. So we have to do bath time and dinner time really quickly because I need to go finish this assignment. And sure enough, I reiterated that message that evening up until the time that I put them to bed. And I was like, all right. I'm going to go to my office. I'm going to finish this assignment. And then the next morning, first thing they heard from me after good morning was, yay, I got my assignment in. Yay. Right. Because I'm trying to demystify how success happens for them. Yeah. Right. Like you, you stumble and you fall, you stumble and you fall. And the success isn't getting up and trying again. And so that's like one of the things that became really clear to me that I have to model not just, oh, mama's running her company and mama has a wonderful team of people that she works with. Yeah. But mama sometimes also makes mistakes and mama sometimes needs a helping hand. And so like I'm, I'm really trying to model both of those things um, because I think that it would be really easy for them to think that somehow success just happens. Yeah. You know, right. and that's just not the case. Right. Right. It's hard work and you're going to mess up. I mean, like, all, all the time. I really think yeah. that you're, there's no success without failure. There's like zero. Nobody has ever succeeded without first failing many, many times. You know, it's just impossible in my mind. So I'm wondering. So you have a company. It's called uh, Lantigua Williams and Company, your last name. And I know that you that's a huge risk. That's a big risk to, to start your own company. So as you made that decision, I'm wondering, like, did you think about your parents at all as you make big decisions in your life like that? And Like, did you struggle at all with how your parents might react? I mean, I know you're a well-established adult, but I am also (laughs) a well-established adult. And I will tell you that almost every big decision I think about making in my life, I do sort of in the back of my mind think, what will my parents think? It's true. I mean, (laughs) I I like well-established adults. It's better than grown-ass person. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's a slightly elevated version. Um, No, I think about, so when I make big decisions like that, I think about how do I reassure her that we're going to be okay, right? Mm -hmm. Because in her mind, you know, I have my college degree, I have two master's degree, my husband is an engineer, like in her mind, we're successful. Like if we just keep doing what we've been doing, we're great, right? Because that is all we needed to succeed. And I think it's really, it's really satisfying for her to know that she played an incredibly important role in getting Mm -hmm. me to this point. So I think part of it is also like, why, why would you start over? Like, you're good. You've spent the last 30 years in pursuit of success and you already have it. Like, what are you doing? And so when I'm making big decisions, like starting my company, I have to be really practical and anticipate where her worry points are going to come, right? Mm -hmm. And just Mm -hmm. be like, no, you know, I'm going to keep editing and I'm going to keep writing and I already have some some jobs lined up. So there will be income coming and, you know, I'm only going to do it for a year. And, you know, I've already set my goals for the first three months and the next six months. So I think that when I approached it that way with her, all she said was, 
you got this. I believe in you. You can do anything you want. You are one of a kind. You know, the same the same pep talk she's been giving me since I was yeah. 12. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. In fact, one of the other episodes we listened to as part of the playlist was from Nancy. Mm-hmm. And um, it was uh, she went back to Taiwan to kind of with her mother and talked to um, a queer woman in Taiwan about her own uh, interaction with her parents as she came out, right? And one of the things that this woman said, which I thought was really, it was such a tiny little clip, but I was like, this is really important, was that she said, you know, I really believe, she said something like, I really believe that, you know, our parents come from a different world than us. And and there's something about, like, we expect our parents to kind of um, be okay with who we are today. Like, mm-hmm. you know, for her, she was struggling with her parents' you know, coming to terms with her being queer. But in a lot of respects, it's also about the child understanding that our parents have limitations and extending them the same um, courtesies that we expect them to extend to us, you know, like not expecting them to change because you don't want your parents to come to you and expect you to change. So kind of coming to some sort of middle ground of being like, well, my parents are who they are. And, um, I want them to accept me. So I also have to accept them. Yeah. yeah. But I think also it, it for me, uh, and this happened when I became a mom immediately. It's not just the acceptance that they're different. I think that we really have to cultivate a deep appreciation for how their strengths are also different than our strengths. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that this happens because, Every child thinks that their mom and dad is a superhero and somehow they have superpowers and this is how they manifest your life because they just have these superhuman abilities. In fact, they don't. Right. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. it wasn't. And of course, this is what every mom tells their daughter or son. We just wait until you have kids. Right. But it really wasn't until I had my first son that I started to recognize so many of my mother's individual strengths. Right. So I have always known my mom is a feminist. My mom is a woman who worked four jobs, you know, when she and my my stepfather separated. My mom put four kids through college by herself. Right. Like my mom has these really superhuman abilities. But it wasn't until I was with my own child every day in and out that I started to really recognize where the hundreds and thousands of smaller superpowers were that she had. Um, And then I imposed the context of 1980s and 1990s Bronx, New York City onto that. Because I'm doing it in a very comfortable suburban home. She's doing it in a five-story walk-up in the South Bronx in crack-infested New York City in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And right. then you really start to get perspective. And I and I'm learning from the show that a lot of the times just asking someone. Have you thought about this context right. for your parents? From their, mm-hmm. Just asking them that mm-hmm. is yeah, enough so. to like open up a whole uh, separate conversation about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like you're right. It's like there's a there's almost a dip. Right. So as children, as small children, you know, obviously you idolize your parents. You think they're the best things. They know everything. They're the smartest people in the world. Mm -hmm. 
but then there's a point where I think that turns, right? Like you're like, oh, my parents are, are human. They don't know anything. They can't get with the times. Like I know everything better than my parents. And then almost it's like, sounds like, you know, once you start, you know, maybe when you have kids, I don't have kids, but I think I've started to appreciate my parents a lot more at a certain point where you start to like, oh, wait, this, my, my mom was my age when, when she went through this thing. And then you start to be like, oh, wait, no, they are kind of superheroes. <laughs> so there's this, you know, like, you shape absolutely yeah absolutely my mom was okay so when my mom had me she was the age that I was when I graduated college now thinking about who I was when I graduated college and thinking about having a child I throw up like just Mm -hmm. thinking about that I would not have been capable qualified nowhere near able to handle that yeah. responsibility. Yeah. And you yet know? she she raised four children. Yeah. They're all like good successful. people, successful. Yeah. And like that in and of itself is a superpower, yeah. especially given that she started when she was 22. You know, that's Well, I was 20 when I graduated college, but oh. you know, no one's counting. Oh, you're such a smarty pants. <laughs> <laughs> of course you were 20 when you graduated from college. You're talking to Juleka. I mean, of course. She's like the queen of like. Oh, stop. Ambi- she, I, no, I'm you really just, are, though. I'm just messing with you. I mean, honestly, I have been, I will say, though, I've been in awe of just watching everything that you've done since I met you a couple years ago. It's really been incredible to witness. So kudos to you and your team and everything that you've pulled off. It's really impressive. So. So it's my team. So we should always put my team in front of me, honestly. <laughs> I I am really the head cheerleader. Um, I mean, I keep the lights on. Obviously, that's important. But um, I will always um, make the argument that I have, like, I work really hard, but I really have one very reliable talent, which is I know the goods when I see the goods. And so I'm, I'm really, I really lean into that. I really lean into my ability to know when someone is the real deal, when someone is smart and brilliant and dedicated and gifted. And so I, I just run to those people as fast as I can, you know, and I, and I try to find ways to collaborate with them that are interesting and that help them to grow and that push boundaries. And so Honestly, it, the last two and a half years have just been a testament to anyone's ability to focus on finding the best people to work with and then doing the best work, honestly. And it's not singular to me in any way. It's yeah. not. Like, well, I mean, I, I do think, though, that it, there is something that speaks to your leadership that you the, the immediate response to my my kudos to you is to say it's not about me it's about my team because I think that's really the clear uh a clear indicator of a good leader is somebody who cultivates a team and also you know passes passes along praise and 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 kudos to their team so good but I mean let's be realistic you know how a podcast gets made imagine making 13 podcasts if I said to you oh yes you know me and my 13 podcasts (laughs) that I'm making (laughs) That but you know that people do that, right? Like okay, people but, do do that. 
Okay, but that's people who are clearly delusional, right? And who think that right. they can not fool that... other people. Right. They think they can fool other people. That's what I, I mean. Meant. Exactly. If I ever went anywhere and was like, oh, yeah, look at this roster of things that I'm making, I'd be laughed out of the room. You know, like, I'm not delusional. I know I know who's really, you know, putting in the work, the sweat and the tears. I know I have an important role in that. But come on. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's the same for me with Podcast Brunch Club. There's no way I would have been able to pull this off without having chapter leaders that are amazing all over the world. There's a zero way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I hear you. Um, so let's start to wrap up. I want to, you know, respect your time. But we always ask our guests at the very end of our interviews if they can recommend a podcast to our listeners. So what is your podcast pick or picks if you want? I have a good one because it's like getting... 80 podcasts in one. So um, there is this podcast series just for 2020 called Ochenta Stories, O-C-H-E-N-T-A. And it's out of Ochenta Studios in Paris. And Lori Martinez, who's brilliant and a dear, dear friend, has collected stories from around the world in a bunch of languages, both fictional and non-fictional stories. And they're bite-sized. They're like five, seven, eight minutes but they really drop you into these incredible worlds. And I've, I I just, true, you know, obviously, full disclosure, I co-wrote one with a great friend of mine. And so it's in, it's in the mix. But I asked if I could write one after listening to a bunch of them. <laughs> That's awesome, though. I, I love like, that you just Lori, go get it. please, yeah. can we write one for you? <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. They're you know what the so funny thing good. is? Lori, actually, I know Lori. She actually started a chapter for us in Paris for a while. Nice. Yeah. Oh, she's wonderful. Yeah. So Ochenta yeah. Stories is my my recommendation um, because you have an international audience and it's multilingual. And there's there's one story from Gla- uh, not from Glasgow, um, Edinburgh. There's one story from Edinburgh that is I've been to Edinburgh, and so I just closed my eyes as I was listening to it, and I was I was really transported. It's so it's the whole series is so beautiful and so well done. Cool. I will find those. I will find the episode link and the show link, and I put it in the in the um, podcast notes. Um, final question: How can people follow you? So I'm at Juleika Lantigua on Twitter and on Instagram. Um, and Land Will Co. is the company's um, handle everywhere. So and then our podcasts are everywhere. Listen, enjoy, rate us, share us. Thank you. Yes. Excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Juleika. I really appreciate you being here. It's always good to talk to you. Oh, my God. This isn't even work. I love it. Invite me again. <laughs> okay. okay what no, you no. Don't for. invite me too soon. Exactly. Don't invite me too soon. <laughs> you know I will. Um, well, thank you again. It was lovely. Thank you for listening and being a part of the Podcast Brunch Club community. Do you have any thoughts on our discussion this month? send a message or voice memo to podcast at podcastbrunchclub.com. PBC is a passion project and we rely on support from our global community to continue bringing people together in person and online. So if you feel like PBC has contributed to your life in any way, please consider becoming a patron or making a one-time donation. Go to podcastbrunchclub.com support for more information. If you're interested in becoming an organizational partner, 
go to podcastbrunchclub.com slash sponsors. A quick thanks to our early partners. Podbean. For one free month of podcast hosting, go to podbean.com slash PBC. Podchaser, the IMDB of podcasts. Listen Notes, a podcast search engine. Critical Frequency, the podcast network for everyone else. The Venn Media, a weekly newsletter for curious minds. And Lentigua Williams and Company, podcast network, telling stories in the seams of society. Finally, some credits for this episode. Katie DeFiori is our audio editor. Music is from Chad Crouch and Miss Ayal Ghana, downloaded from Free Music Archive. I'm Adela, founder of Podcast Brunch Club. And as always, thanks and happy listening. <laughs>